Hey there, everyone. Michael A. Bryan here from the Oracular School of Astrology with yet another question and answer segment where practicing astrologers bring me their questions and I provide them answers based on my astrological practice. Hey there. How are you? Doing great. Good, good. So my question, and I know we've talked about this a lot, but I'm, I'd love a concise soundbite on soft aspects between the Lord of a house, right? The Lord of the first house or the fourth house, seventh, whatever, and in particular, the eighth and the tenth, and, and not the eighth in terms of partner's money, but the eighth, I mean, the eighth and the twelfth. Okay. Sounds like you want me to talk about death. <laughs> okay. All right. So the question has to do with soft aspects between the lords of houses. This is a very important question because whenever we look at the chart, we can look at the chart from two perspectives. We can either look at the chart from the perspective of the planets within that chart being the lords of houses or the planets within that chart being the planets within that chart. Now, we speak about this as those planets being specific significators when they're the lords of houses versus those planets being universal significators when we're just viewing those planets as those planets themselves. And you know where I wrote about this in Mastering Traditional Astrology, A Depth of Beginning in the Celestial Art. Chapter 8, which is page 188 within this book, speaks about this exact same topic. And I'm just going to read you a section from that because it took me a long time to write it. So, page 189, Planets in Theory and Practice, Chapter 8. Within traditional astrology, the planets are understood in one of two ways. Planets can either be universal significators or specific significators. Astrologically speaking, a significator is a symbolic representative of anything within our physical world. Planets will always represent certain themes or ideas universally. Venus, for example, is the universal significator of love and marriage. When Venus, or any planet for that matter, is viewed purely through the universal theme it represents, that planet is known as the universal significator. So when I specifically look at planets as universal significators, I never look at them with soft aspects. Now, for those of you who don't know, a soft aspect is a sextile or a trine. Those are our two soft aspects in traditional astrology. Some people include the semi-sextile in that as well. But in traditional astrology, we really don't have a major precedence for using the semi-sextile because if two planets only have 30 degrees of arc between them, then those two planets from a traditional perspective aren't actually in any sort of aspect relationship with each other. Now, I know that people who followed my work for a while may say, but Michael, you say that you use the quincunx, and when planets are in a quincunx relationship, they technically aren't in any sort of quote-unquote aspect relationship with each other either. And that is true. A quincunx is when planets have a 150-degree arc opening between them. And when planets have a 150-degree arc opening between them, they aren't in any sort of aspect relationship whatsoever. They are literally in the relationship that is literally called a non-aspect. However, the quincunx tends to act in a more malefic or a more challenging way that causes it to be noteworthy than the semi-sextile does. 
So whereas both the semi-sex style and the quincunx are not aspects within traditional astrology, of those two non-aspects, the quincunx is the only one that seems to act in a demonstrable and event-based sort of way. If you have two planets within your chart that are in quincunx relationships with each other, then those two planets are engaged in the deepest sort of warfare known to astrology. And I dare say that the quincunx is more malefic even than the opposition or the square. And I think... I don't really want to go into this, but, and I'm not going to go into it because that example is very specific and it's also very traumatic and not traumatic for me, but it's a very traumatic story. And I don't want for people to take away sound bites that really represent very sensitive topics and then use them to justify only using them outside of the context of a full chart reading. Whenever we say anything to a person, we always need to say that encrouched within the larger sphere of knowing exactly what's going on within their chart as a whole. We can never look at one thing within a person's chart and use that one thing within a person's chart to define the entire story of their lives, which is a part of why I get very agitated when people do that. I won't give specific examples because I just won't, but it's a very crazy thing. So the quincunx definitely is used, but the semi-sex style isn't used. Now, I don't use soft aspects when it comes to viewing planets as universal significators because the soft aspect, the sex style, or the trine between two planets, it doesn't manifest as concretely as the square or the opposition or the semi-square or the sesquiquadrate or the conjunction between those two planets from a universal perspective. When Venus and Saturn have a trine relationship, fine. Maybe it means that that person has a very mature understanding of love. However, when Venus and Saturn are in a conjunction, a semi-square, a square, a sesquiquadrate, or an opposition, it brings out the full concrete reality of the Venus-Saturn story in ways like the Venus-Saturn trine could never. And the reason for that is because hard aspects from a traditional perspective make things happen, whereas soft aspects facilitate things happening. So whenever I'm looking at a planet, or whenever I'm looking at two or more planets universally, as in Saturn represents restriction, Jupiter represents abundance, Mars represents warfare and our blood relations, the Sun represents our willpower, our father and our physical body, Venus represents love and our sisters and creativity, Mercury represents communication and commerce and speaking, and the Moon is representing our mother and our family in general, whenever I'm using the planets from a universal perspective, I only look at them and the stories they're saying from the perspective of their hard aspects only. Now, if I'm looking at planets from their specific perspective, as in planets being the specific rulers of houses, then I use the soft aspects, the hard aspects together. 
And what I mean, just so that we can be extremely clear about this, is that whenever I look at a planet and I say that this planet is the lord of the blah blah house, and this other planet is the lord of the blah blah house, and these two planets are in a trine relationship with each other, that is the only time when I use the entire suite of Ptolemaic aspects. And for those of you who don't know, the Ptolemaic aspects are the sextile, the square, the trine and the opposition. Why is the conjunction not listed amongst the Ptolemaic aspects? Because the conjunction is not an aspect. And I've said this time and time again, and I've even recently done a webinar on all the reasons why a conjunction isn't an aspect. So if you want to watch that, you can watch it for yourself. But a conjunction isn't an aspect. When we're looking at the planets as the lords of houses, that is when we speak about the planets via any one of those four Ptolemaic aspects, and we also include the conjunction in that. Now, the conjunction has always been thrown in amongst the aspects since time immemorial, and everybody who you read from the 9th century straight up until the end of the 18th century says that a conjunction isn't really an aspect. However, we might as well throw it in amongst the aspects, even if a conjunction defies our technical definition of what an aspect is. So fine, we'll throw the conjunction in that, but as technically advanced astrologers, we all should know that the conjunction technically isn't an aspect. When we're speaking about the planets as the lords of houses, then we say, ah, the lord of my first house is having a wonderful sextile relationship with the lord of my second house. Because that is how we begin to build concrete analyses of what's going on within the person's chart. If you have the Lord of the first house in the sextile relationship with the Lord of the second house, then you can say that this person has a very good relationship with their money. They know how to manage their money. They know how to bounce back if they fall into financial hardship. They have good relationships with their money. Whereas if we have the Lord of the first house in a quincunx relationship with the Lord of the second house, we say, ah, this person is having an awful time within this lifetime in terms of money. This person doesn't know how to let $1 stay in their pocket for very long. This person has no financial sobriety. Money runs away from this person screaming. Because that's kind of what it feels like when the ruler of the first house is in a quincunx relationship with the ruler of the second house. Similarly, specific to the question that was asked, if I have the ruler of my first house in a trine relationship with, say, the ruler of my eighth house, the default, which I was asked not to talk about, but my default definition for that would be that this person has a very good relationship with the money of their spouse. And the reason for that is because more often than not, whenever we do a chart reading, whether it's a blind chart reading or a reading for a client, when we have a trine relationship, actually not even a trine relationship, whenever we're referring to the eighth house within a person's chart, nine times out of 10, the eighth house is going to refer to the money of that person's spouse. Now we know that the eighth house means several things. The eighth house means death. The eighth house means old ruinous buildings. The eighth house means wills. The eighth house means the money we receive from the dead. The eighth house is also a house of poisoning. The eighth house is also a house of anxiety. All of the houses within our chart have multiple meanings. The second house is the house of food, but the second house is also the house of money. People never know that the second house is the house of food, but it definitely is the house of food, which I also write about in Mastering Traditional Astrology. 
The fifth house, for example, is the house of our children, our pleasure, our entertainment, our creativity. It's specifically the house of the womb when we're looking at a chart from the perspective of fertility. But of all of those topics, the topic that tends to come up the most universally for people is the topic of children. Similarly, the sixth house is the house of our small animals and our sickness and the things that ail us and our employees and the money that we make from our employees. However, more often than not, the sixth house specifically represents sickness within a person's chart. So when it comes to the 12 houses, we have to, yes, know all of the things associated with the 12 houses, but we also have to know what specific things are more likely to come up when we're discussing a particular house versus what that house might mean in general. And this is a very refined art. I teach it at the Oraculo School of Astrology, but it's important for us to know how to do that. Because when we're talking about the fourth house, what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about our father or are we talking about our family? When we're talking about the ninth house, what are we actually talking about? Are we talking about foreign travel or are we talking about religion or are we talking about higher education? All of the houses have multiple meanings and it requires a lot of skill to know at what point in time we should draw on one meaning versus another, which is another topic for another day. Going back to the relationship between the ruler of the first house and the eighth house, when the ruler of the first house is terrestrially located in the eighth house, that can be a very life-threatening thing within the life of a person. And very often those people can have near-death experiences very early on within their lives. And I don't mean a near-death experience like you accidentally almost stepped onto the train tracks. I mean near-death experience as in you were scarred for the rest of your life because you, when you were six years old, you managed to slip through the railings of the balcony and you were dangling off the edge of the balcony of the sixth floor and almost dropped to your demise and someone caught you. That sort of near-death experience is what we find when we have the ruler of the first house in the eighth house. And that is only further augmented the more that ruler of the first house is afflicted by being in the eighth house. Maybe the ruler of the first house is in the eighth house in opposition with the ruler of the eighth house. Then that definitely is more so sealing the deal for us, as it were, in terms of this person's early anxiety surrounding their physical well-being because they probably lived life always having one foot out of the door or always in fear of their imminent demise, basically. This can also be true if you have the ruler of the eighth house in the first house. The same thing is true. And once again, these things tend to pan out earlier within our lives. So if you're currently 63 years old and none of this has happened to you, then fine. It hasn't happened to you. But if it did happen to you, it would have happened to you earlier within your life. And I dare say by the time as you reached 30 years old, that story would have manifested. So that's how we view the ruler of those houses in those separate houses. But if I have the ruler of my first house in a wonderful trine relationship with the ruler of the eighth house, then what does that mean from the perspective of death? One of the things the ancients tell us is that can be as if that person is smiled upon by the angel of death. And what does that mean to be smiled upon by the grim reaper? Well, what it means is that you're probably not going to have any major near-death experiences. You're probably going to go through your entire life in a state of 
there could be a 10 car pileup and you can be underneath those 10 cars, but somehow you come out of it not even with a scratch. So there can be that sort of relationship if you have the ruler of the first house in the trine relationship with the ruler of the eighth house. This can definitely be the truth if the ruler of the eighth house is Jupiter or Venus, but more so Jupiter because Jupiter is the great protector, even more than Venus is the great protector. So this can be even more so the truth if you have the ruler of your eighth house as Jupiter in either Pisces or Sagittarius, which are the two domiciles of Jupiter, or even Cancer, which is the exaltation of Jupiter, and in a trine relationship with the ruler of the Ascendant. That means that you are being smiled upon by the angel of death, and as opposed to you receiving any of the challenging things that the Eighth House has to bring, such as anxiety and fear and death, you can have a great sense of longevity, you can have a great sense of living forever, you know, not living forever, but living long without necessarily having to have any major threat of death within your life. And you can have a great sense of always being fortunate and of always coming out scratch-free, basically. So that's one of the ways how we could interpret that. If you're having the same thing with the ruler of the sixth house and you don't want me to speak about sickness, or maybe you do want me to speak about sickness, then that can mean that that can be a panacea within your life as far as sickness is concerned. Ruler of my first house, trying the ruler of my sixth house, I never get sick. Everybody else around me gets sick, but I'm the one person who seems to always be in a state of robust health. And even if I am sick for a little bit, I'm not really ever that sick because I'm never really sick because I'm being smiled upon by the angel of sickness. Similarly, you have the ruler of the 12th house in a trine relationship with the ruler of the ascendant. It could kind of mean the same thing in terms of sickness because the 6th and the 12th house are on the axis of both acute and chronic disease. And people make that distinction between acute disease in the 6th house and chronic disease in the 12th house. And I haven't found that to be the case. If you're in the 6th house or if you're in the 12th house, the disease can be just as chronic in either one of those two houses. But if you have the rule of the 12th house in the trine relationship to the rule of your ascendant, then that can also be a thing that makes you feel as if you are blessed or as if the angels of heaven are always on your side or as if no matter how bad the world around you falls into chaos, you always seem to come up smelling like roses. So this is how these evil houses, the 6th house, the 8th house, and the 12th house, can manifest in a positive way. And this is especially the case if the ruler of those houses is a benefic planet, specifically if the ruler of those houses is Jupiter in either Sagittarius, Pisces, or Cancer. Because if you have a good planet ruling an evil house, but in a good aspect with the ruler of the Ascendant, then that good planet will save you from the badness of that evil house and it will bring you the good things that that house actually has to offer. Whereas if you have a bad planet in a bad state ruling an evil house and in a square or an opposition with the ruler of the ascendant, then that bad planet in its bad state in its bad aspect, the rule of the ascendant will bring you the badness that those houses have to offer, especially if there are no other saving graces that exist within your horoscope. Well done, maestro. Oh.
Okay. <laughs> Thank you. That's next level. Okay. Was it really? Have I never said that before in the universe? I may not have been listening, but <laughs> I love the way you said it. Thank you. Okay, you're very, very, very welcome. Hey there, everyone. I just want to say thank you all so much for the love and support that you've shown me in the months after the publication of my book, Mastering Traditional Astrology. If you have loved reading MTA and if it has deepened your astrological relationship and practice in any way whatsoever, then please leave a five-star review for us over on Amazon.com. As a self-published author, this would mean the world to me because the more five-star high-quality reviews we get, the more Amazon promotes the book to a wider audience so that more and more people can experience the magic that is mastering traditional astrology. Thank you so much for your continued love and support, and thank you so much for your dedication to this extraordinary field of astrology.